A Letter from the Fire by Thomas D. Foster This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Letter from the Fire Being an Account of the Great Chicago Fire all Halloween, October 31, 1871, Chicago, Illinois. My dear father and mother, I am ashamed to put you off any longer without a long letter. I have been waiting to get the office comfortable so that I could spend some evening in it when it would be nice and warm and give you a longer account of the fire. We are into the middle of another week, no desks and no fire, so muffle myself up and collect my thoughts the best way I can. For a beginning, we should have been very busy today with salt, but it is raining very hard and is altogether a miserable day, both out and inside, so cannot find anything better to do, although it is not pleasant work. To begin, on Saturday morning, the 7th of this month, I saw Mr. Ackroyd off to Milwaukee and came back with Mr. Kenny. The three of us were stopping at different hotels. Therefore, Mr. Kenny went to his, I to the Briggs house, and got my tea, then went to the Sherman house, where Mr. Ackroyd had been stopping to get his trunk and have it sent to my room at the Briggs house. After that was done, I took my usual Saturday evening stroll round the city, just ready to look at anything interesting. Nothing happened, but just as I was going into the hotel at ten o'clock, there was the glare of a fire in the sky. I did not feel like going to bed, so thought I might spend an hour looking at the flames. It was a big fire in my eyes then, a large wooden house near a row of splendid brick ones. The latter they were trying to save and succeeded. I was in a splendid position for seeing without getting any of the water the firemen directed at the crowd every few minutes. It was nearly over, and I was just going to leave when someone shouted there was a fire on the west side. I looked up, saw the sky all lurid, and started off to see the new one. It looked very awful, sweeping houses before it like chafe, until it got to a lumber yard. Then the efforts of the firemen appeared useless. Twenty acres of buildings and wood were all ablaze. The sight thrilled me through, as I thought there would be no stopping it. I assisted people to carry things out of their houses, and did what I could to help them, until the fire appeared to be so far under way that there was no further danger. I hung round until two o'clock, then went home, got into bed, satisfied I had seen a tremendous calamity, the biggest of any I had ever seen or hoped to see. But alas, how much was I disappointed— I could not sleep for a long time, and then only dozed off for a few minutes, but woke with a start, and looking out of the window saw how the fire was progressing. Whilst awake I was thinking what a splendid account I could write you. When anything of interest occurs, it is my first thought, how nice that will do for my letter home. I always have you uppermost in my mind, and wish you were with me to enjoy things when I am enjoying myself— but this is parting from my story. When I saw the fire fade, I fell asleep. It was about 4.30, and did not wake until Mr. Kenny came to my door at 10. I had made an appointment to meet him at that hour, and kept it, as you see, in bed. After he left, I slept until 12, 
then got up, dressed, went down, met Mr. Kenny again, and we both started off to Mr. Small's to dine. At 5.20 we left there and walked together to my hotel. We parted, and I did not see him again until 26 hours after, he thinking me burnt, and I thinking that he was burnt. We were very pleased to see each other again safe and sound. I got my tea, went to my room, and read a while, then went to church. It happened to be a universalist place that I got into, and did not enjoy it much. I went away kind of dissatisfied, and got to the Briggs house at 9.15, not feeling like sleeping. I made myself as comfortable as I could, lit my pipe, and commenced reading the book Mrs. Somerville made me a present of. I had been reading about half an hour when the fire bell tolled 3.42 three times. I looked out and saw the sky red in the direction of the fire of the previous evening, but paying no attention to it, I turned round and read away. I looked again and saw it was increasing. I tried to read now, but it was impossible. I put down the gas and sat opposite the window watching it. The fire was more than two miles away. Still, I felt very uneasy and could not go to bed. It was Sunday night, and I did not like the idea of going on a rollicking expedition after a fire, but I could not make myself easy anywhere, and I concluded to go see it. So I took off my Sunday clothes, put on a pair of drawers. I felt chilly the night before, so took the precaution to make myself warm this night, and it was well for me I did, as my story will show during its progression. An extra undershirt, an old warm coat and vest, and sallied out at 10.15 p.m. October 8th. It was blowing hard at the time, but I got along well, having fit myself out for cold and dirt, having little interest in the city, no friends whose losing property could affect me much, and little property of my own to care for. I felt probably as free and easy as anyone who saw that fire. I got up to it at 10.45, but could not get near on account of the heat. How the firemen stood it, I don't know. A general alarm was sounded, and thirty steam fire engines were on the spot soon after I arrived. It was a grand sight, but hellish in the extreme. Streets, houses, trees, and everything in one grand furnace. It was not a blaze like the night before but a white melting heat. Volumes of flames were cut off from the seat of the fire itself and carried over into other streets. In addition to this, there was a perfect shower of sparks, all red and glowing. The fall of them was like a fall of golden snow. And as far as the eye could reach upward, the air was filled with them, not only sparks, but burning brands of wood from six inches to two feet long and from one inch thick to six inches. This may seem incredible, but it is true. I saw them myself, saw them fall in the street, and worse than that, on houses with wooden roofs and on people's heads almost knocking them down. The wind was blowing a fearful gale at this time, and that accounts for it. At 11.15, these brands set fire to the roof of a church about 300 yards from the main fire. I went to see this before there was the sign of a blaze. 
I adopted the plan of keeping before the fire so that in case it spread, I should not be cut off from my hotel. Some men got on the roof and tried to put it out, but they could not. So an engine came and dilly-dallied about for a few minutes until a volume of thick black smoke rolled up from it, and in two minutes it was in flames. The edifice was wood, and it went like a matchbox. It was a Roman Catholic institution. Someone said it was on fire before any sign of a blaze came from it. An old Irish woman that had just come heard the remark and asked, Where is the fire? They told her on the roof. Ah, said she, God will put it out, and appeared quite composed about it. This is where the real trouble commenced. There were two immense fires now, and the fire brigade divided. This left the first fire almost to itself, and in a few minutes it joined the second one. The sight was now dreadful. It swept along, burning wood, bricks, stone alike. I never saw the equal. The two latter materials gave out sooner than the wood. They melted down like wax, while wood burned so long as a stick remained. It flew from house to house almost as quick as one could walk until it reached the river. I will stop about the fire now and tell you something of the inhabitants, a great many being burnt out, the fire having come a mile now and half a mile wide. The people were mostly looking at the fire, but as soon as they saw their homes in danger, a general packing up could be observed in all the houses, and soon after a regular exodus, everyone, old and young, carrying something. The men looked pale and callous as a rule. The women ran about in an excited manner, but none fainted. Children clung to parents or old friends, too frightened to cry. Infants alone made noise, as the mothers had not time to sit down and soothe them. Others of them slept peaceably in their mothers' arms, ignorant of all danger and care. Old women were carrying weights too heavy for men, and young women were dragging trunks, enough for a donkey to pull, no doubt containing their best clothes, or sat on them and wept quietly when they could not pull any longer, and had to leave them for the fire to lick up as a giant would swallow a midge. I was not an idle observer during all this. I carried boxes and bundles without number, placing them in nooks that the owners considered safe. Vain delusion— Everything I laid hands to save was eventually burnt. In one place there was a long train of empty railway cars. People thought the railway company would be sure to save their cars, so they would put in their goods. I worked as I never worked before, loading up the cars with all kinds of things. But before I had finished, the train was on fire, and it burnt up as would a train of gunpowder on the flags. This was my last act of kindness on the west side. It being close to the river, I crossed over to what is called the south side. To return to the fire account, after crossing the river, I stood and gazed on the burning mass. It was thought it could not cross eighty yards of water. The firemen made a hard fight here to prevent its going any further, and it looked somewhat as if they might succeed. At this point I left, a fire having broken out behind me about four hundred yards away. 
This was on the side of the river I was on, so there was no doubt but that the fire had crossed. Of course, this took away a lot of engines and left the old fire to do as it liked. It soon jumped the river, too, and joined the new one. I went to see this new fire and found it to be among a nest of wooden shanties that went like tinder. Upon close observation, I saw that it was within a few yards of the gas works, so thought it better to quit and plant myself at a reasonable distance from it. In going away, I took the liberty of hammering people up, as the fire was spreading so rapidly it might reach them before all of them could get out. The streets were all quiet as I passed along, but soon were busy enough with people turning out. I was also busy enough assisting to put out little fires, such as linen awnings that Sparks had ignited and pieces of wooden sidewalks that were burning, until I got to the heart and best part of the city, where all buildings were built of brick, stone, iron, or marble, and many of them without any wood except the office desks and furniture. I felt sure the fire would never go through these buildings, Still, to make my mind easy, I went to the Briggs house and commenced packing. This was one o'clock, wind still blowing a gale, the fire within a quarter of a mile from the hotel, and just beginning to cross the street to the good part of the city. Although I was packing, I really did not believe the fire would reach the place where I was. I will give you an idea of how my packing arrangements were made. I first got my small valise with the brass round the edges, put into it my best suit, album, and all the little presents that I value, and then filled up with the best of my underclothing. After that, I took off the old suit I had on and put on my second best suit, so that if it came to the worst, I could carry the valise in my hand and have a good suit on my back. At this juncture, a waiter of the hotel came running up, saying the wind had changed and there was no danger. I paid little attention to it and went on packing my large trunk. Certainly, it made me more careless in packing, for I left out a lot of small things I could have put in, thinking if the place should be threatened, I could then put them in. After I fastened all up, leaving out my large overcoat, I again walked out to see the progress of the fire. It had taken full possession of the fine buildings I before mentioned. It was surprising to see the way they tumbled. Marble buildings cracked away for a time, then burst out in a volume of flame. The walls parted, and down came the whole fabrication, a jumbled mass of smoldering ruins. This took but little time, but short as it was, before it was in ruins, other buildings were burning and tumbling in the same way. I was watching in one place when a cry was raised that the city hall was on fire. I never thought that this would burn as it stands in a little park and is built of stone. I ran round and there, sure enough, the cupola was burning and very soon after the edifice was a red seething mass sending up clouds of sparks and dealing destruction with a deadly hand all round. I now thought it about time to move and see after my things, so commenced lugging them downstairs. I had not time now to put anything into the trunk, so let the few things left take their chance. I had with me one valise, 
one large portmanteau of my own, and one large trunk belonging to Mr. Ackroyd. Had he left it at Sherman's house, it was gone sure, as I could never have saved it. When I had them down, I went to look for a carriage or an expressman to take them away. They were asking fifty dollars for a carriage. As this would not do, I went up the street a piece, met a man with a light wagon, asked what he would take me a mile away for. He said five dollars down. Done, I said. He wanted to get the money in the street before he got the things. Of course, I would not do that, but told him I would pay him the minute I got the things on board. After a good deal of talk, he consented, came alongside, put the packages on, and I paid him. Just as I was leaving, the place took fire, and I heard people offering $100, then $150 for a carriage, but they could not get any. As I was going along, several people applied to the expressman, offering him three or four dollars for the conveyance of a trunk, but ten dollars was now his charge. People refused to pay him that amount, and I am sure they all lost their things, as we were about the last to cross the bridge. We took up one young man with a similar lot of traps to mine. He was a very decent fellow, so we stuck together. The expressman put us down at his own house. We left our things inside and went to see how the fire was getting along. Before going further, I will explain why I crossed the river again and what we did. To do this, I must give you an idea of the place. I remember once before giving you a rough outline of Chicago. I will do so again. See illustration. The bars across the river represent the turn bridges. One is where the fire commenced, two where I crossed the river the first time, three where I crossed the second, four where I crossed the third, five where I finally drew up and left my clothes. The wind was blowing in the direction from one to six, so I thought the fire would wear out at the lake and not be able to cross the river to the north side. In this I was mistaken, for when I went to look at the fire after deposing our things at the expressman's house, as before stated, we found the bridge we had just crossed was on fire, and that the north side was doomed unless the wind changed. This was three o'clock, so we turned back to move our traps again. Whilst walking up, we met a man pulling a large trunk. We helped him along to where we were staying, hired a boy with a wagon who drove over to the west side, crossing bridge at number four. Here we considered ourselves safe, put down our luggage on the sidewalk, and sat on it till daylight. We asked a man to let us into his house, but he refused. It was here that my warm underclothing and heavy overcoat stood to me. The wind was brisk and keen. Had I been lightly clothed, I might have taken a severe cold. Fortunately, I escaped. This place was partly on the prairie, so had a splendid view of the fire at large, although fully three miles from it. The smallest print could be read with ease. The light was so intense. As day dawned, the light faded, but daylight revealed the volumes of black smoke rolling up from the city and the ruins of the previous night's destruction. The fire was now sweeping the north side entirely unchecked, the waterworks being burnt and no water in the town. I felt very hungry by this time, and hailed with delight the taking down of the first shutter of a small grocery store. 
I got some dry biscuits and ate them with a relish, something wonderful. As there was a dirt wagon passing, our last-named friend and myself stopped it, put in our things, got on top of them, and requested the driver to take us to a place my friend knew. He accommodated us and drew up at a very good-looking general store in a small settlement on the prairie, shown as number five on the map. It ought to be farther out, but the paper won't admit it. We gave our baggage in charge of the owners and left them. In walking back to the city, we met a gentleman who was acquainted with my fellow traveler. He wished us to call at his house and have breakfast. We did so, and a good one it was. The house was all upset, getting their things packed up, little of which I am afraid was saved. Walking citywards, the road was crowded with all sorts of vehicles carrying furniture of every description. The road was littered with furniture, pianos, beds, and so forth, in indescribable confusion. Drivers of wagons would engage to take it some distance on the prairie, get their money first before they started, then would only go a little way, tumble it out on the road, return, and repeat the operation on someone else. I now wanted to get to Mr. Small's house to learn what I could about Mr. Kenny. When I got to the city, I found all the bridges that I have starred burnt up, so had to make a long detour going all round the burnt district. His house is on the south side where I put a cross. I arrived there at eleven o'clock, lost in dirt, blended with dust and smoke. Not a drop of water in the house to wash with. Mr. Small told me to consider it his house, my home, until I could find something else. I took a bucket, went to the lake, and brought it back full of water, and felt better for it. This was 11.30 a.m. Up to this time, nothing was heard of Mr. Kenny. I felt rather uneasy, as it was much easier for him to get there than for me, and I fully expected finding him there when I arrived. I was also astonished to find the south side still burning. The fire was creeping up against the wind at the rate of a house every five minutes. At that calculation, Small's house would be burnt at three o'clock. Of course, he was very uneasy and sent his wife and baby away. If the wind changed in the opposite direction, he would be cleared out much sooner. At two o'clock, we walked down together and found the flames stopped by blowing up of several streets of houses. The north side was swept out clear and clean, right into the country, burning up Lincoln Park and a Catholic cemetery. Seventy-five thousand people resided on the north side, and every house, with one exception, was burned to the ground, not even the walls standing. Another one hundred thousand people were rendered homeless and had to camp out on the prairie without any covering for two days and two nights, having little to eat and scarcely any water to drink. This is something awful to think of. Delicate people, young children of all classes, huddled together without any comforts. A great many people died, and no wonder. However, they are all pretty well provided for now. Supplies are plentiful. The only fear is that the charity will be abused. The fire lasted 36 hours. 
during that time clearing everything before it for a distance of five and a half miles, commencing in a point and finishing two miles in width, about 50,000 tons of coal caught fire, which burned for a week quite bright, always keeping the sky aglow with its light. It is still burning, but no fire can be seen. I must add here that Mr. Kenny did not turn up the whole afternoon, and I began to fear the worst. However, he made his appearance between seven and eight o'clock, all safe and sound, and relieved my mind. Next day the city was put under martial law, General Sheridan commanding. I was made a patrol between twelve and four o'clock at night with small. This was to prevent ruffians from firing other places. Several of them were caught and immediately shot or hung up to some lamp post. The city was without water ten days and fourteen without gas, so it presented a miserable appearance. Mr. Kenny and myself went to the lake twice a day and brought as much water as supplied Mr. Small's family. This was the way we paid our board. People a long way from the lake suffered fearfully. All the watering carts were put to hauling water, but all they could draw was only a speck of what was needed. I have given you a pretty fair account of my experience during the fire. Now I will give you a few incidents or curiosities. In the first place, I was greatly amused by the unlikely things that many people in their excitement tried to save the very first. On the west side, the rage appeared to be to save their stores and crockery. As soon as a house was threatened, the first thing brought out was a stove, then a lot of tins and glassware. In other places, I saw people open their windows upstairs and throw out looking-glasses, chairs, water pitchers, and basins, all of which were broken and rendered useless the moment they touched the ground. In some streets, the pavement was littered with debris of this kind when the fire got amongst the stores, cabmen, expressmen, and roughs in general were dressed up in much better style than usual. A large number of silk hats being particularly observable on the gents, showing plainly that some stores had suffered. A lot of prisoners locked up in the city jail were let loose, the first thing they did was to run over to the jewelry stores and plunder them of all the valuables that were convenient. Many of the store owners saved what they could, then opened the doors and told the multitude to help themselves. One of the largest jewelers out of New York did this, and a few lives were sacrificed in his place, people being so venturesome that they went once too often and got caught with a falling building. One piano store owner commenced pulling pianos out of a third-story window. This was the worst piece of business that I saw, for they were smashed into splinters when they struck the ground and greatly endangered the lives of people around. Pistols were freely used. A great many ruffians were shot for trying to break into different places, and in return a few respectable men were shot by them for preventing them carrying out their purpose. One expressman that we employed was going to drop our things out on the street after he got a few yards when one of my newly made acquaintances drew his revolver and told him he would blow his brains out if he did. He drove quietly on after that. A great many lives were lost, more than ever will be known. A lot of people congregated in the tunnel under the river that I have described in a previous letter, and most of them were smothered or burned. There were two things that helped the fire along wonderfully. 
They were the wooden pavements and the quantity of things thrown out of the houses and left there. This ends my account. All being well, I will continue my usual weekly letter from this out. I am very well and hope you are the same. With kindest love to yourselves, Annie and Alfred, I remain your affectionate son, Thomas. You may show this letter to anyone you think would be interested in it. I cannot begin to write another so minute as this. End of a Letter from the Fire by Thomas D. Foster Read by Anita Sloma Martinez